Good morning. We are grateful that you are here and the opportunity to study together and to fellowship with one another. And we continue to emphasize, even as Don kind of mentioned in his announcements, the idea that we would love for you to be here as often as possible because it's the presence of one another as our numbers have been able to go back up just a little bit. We are thankful to be together. But as we try to say often as well, we hope that you just will plan to be here every time that the doors are open, not just on Sunday morning, but on Sunday night for our services and for all of our Bible classes. And we just are thankful for the congregation here and the chance that we have to encourage one another. When we think about the world and we think about the things of the Bible, one of the quotes that the churches of Christ sort of in general have been known for over the years is the idea that we want to call Bible things by Bible names and do Bible things in Bible ways. I believe, if I'm not mistaken, that is typically attributed to Alexander Campbell, someone who is well-known and, and famous among churches of Christ, someone who is seeking to go back to the things of the Bible. I didn't necessarily intend for it to be this way, but next Sunday we're going to talk a little bit about that as well, God be willing, about the idea of the restoration movement or restoring things from the Bible. And so this kind of slogan, if you will, uh, some people might call it a creed or, or things like that, but this kind of idea that we as people of God, as followers of Christ, simply seek to do the things that we do, not only in the world and as we go about life through work and we go through our, our play and our fun, but especially as well when it comes to the things of our worship and the things that we do here as a congregation, that we would seek out the Bible and do what the Bible says and do what they were doing during the first century there and on the pages of the New Testament that we read about. You know, there are a lot of things that sometimes applies to, just to give you a few. One of those things is the idea, of course, of the name, the name that we bear, especially even here of the congregation. You know, a lot of people wear the names of men, not to just isolate anyone in particular, but we think about some people call themselves Lutherans, some people call themselves Wesleyans. They go by, by names of men, and we strive to go by the name of Christ, not only in Christian but we go back to the Bible and we see that the name that was sometimes used, even in passages like Romans 16, 16, is the churches of Christ. There are other names or phrases, if you will, that are, are used to refer to the people, refer to the church. But we see things like that in passages where it is used like there in Romans 16, 16. And so we try to wear the name the church of Christ, the church that doesn't belong to any man or any particular name of men, but to Christ. Another one of those things is, of course, baptism. Uh, both of these things, and the things we're going to mention here very briefly, we don't have time to get into in detail. They could be sermons in and of themselves, but even with the idea of baptism. There are so many ideas. I even saw a person uh, on YouTube this week and, and happened to see a video of a guy who, who promotes the Bible and speaks of things uh, of God and of Christianity, and he was talking about baptism, and it was interesting because he brought up sprinkling, pouring, or Im immersion. Well, you're familiar. There's a lot of confusion at times. There are people who are unsure of what the Bible has to say. But when we go back to the Bible, we want to call Bible things like baptism by Bible names and do them in Bible ways, then we would take the time to study for ourselves what the New Testament has to say about baptism. Again, this lesson is not about that, but it's something that we strive for. Well, one of the things, other things that is sometimes mentioned, and the thing we want to consider this morning in a way, is the idea of the phrase pastor. And you go through the world, there are all kinds of ideas that people have of the idea of pastor. When we think about what the Bible has to say, though, and again, we're going to kind of go a little bit of a different direction with this and not focus on this issue solely, but the Bible uses some different terms to refer to a particular group of people particular group of, of men, the idea of an elder or a bishop or a pastor. But if you know, you go around, we could go through Saudi Daisy, Tennessee, we could go through many places in the world and ask them what they think of when they think of pastor. And most people are going to talk about the idea of what we might call a one pastor system or the pastor system where the pastor is the man that typically stands where I'm standing now, that, that occupies the pulpit, we might say, that serves as the minister or the preacher. And many people would call him the pastor. Now, certainly the man who preaches and sort of serves the role of, as minister or evangelist can serve as a pastor, but when we read what the Bible has to say concerning elders or bishops 
or pastors. It's referring to the group of men who would lead the congregation and making decisions and doing various things. That's kind of what we're going to talk about this morning, more than just simply this idea. Uh, But that's the group of men that it's referring to when it comes to pastors. So that's one of those things that when you hear somebody say it, or maybe they ask you who your pastor is, it's not always the best time to open up your Bible and go through a great in-depth study of all the verses and that kind of thing. But maybe sometimes it's a good chance to put a thought in their mind. Uh, Maybe it's a good chance to cause them to think just a little bit about what the Bible actually has to say, about the idea of a, a minister or an evangelist or a preacher, and the idea of pastors or elders who are serving the congregation. Typically, the month of October has been identified or celebrated as Pastor Appreciation Month. Many of you are aware of this already because we have asked many of you so far this month to do things to honor our pastors or our elders. And we're thankful for that opportunity to try to encourage them, to do things for them, to let them know that we are thinking about them. Most of them have been serving for years or have certainly been in the congregation with elders for many years. So we did not necessarily need a pandemic to show us how strong the elders need to be or what the role of an elder is. But certainly in the last 18 months or so, we have learned that the elders have a lot of tough decisions and have a lot of things that they have to try to wrestle with and handle and a lot of things that they need to do. And so it's very, very tough. And so we don't want to just take the month of October, but we've been thankful so far to try to do just a few things to honor them, to let them know that we appreciate them. As we think this morning about the eldership just a little bit, about elders or pastors, uh, there's some things that we want to consider uh, from the Bible. First of all, it is the pattern. When we think about the, the New Testament, it is the pattern. Well, what do we mean? Well, in Acts chapter 11, specifically verses verse number 30, but verses 27 through 30, we see that it is the pattern of the church. It is the plan of God that there be elders. The church at Jerusalem had elders. Here in this particular passage, we see that there are prophets that came to Jerusalem and told that there there was going to be a famine. And so in verse number 29, the disciples, each according to his ability, determined to send relief to the brethren dwelling in Judea. Well, what were they going to do? How are they going to do this? Well, it says this they also did, verse 30, and sent it to the elders. I mean, how should things work? What would be the pattern of the church? Well, here we see that the church had elders. We even think about Acts chapter 20 and verse number 17. Paul is traveling around. Verse number 16 actually tells us that he is hurrying. He is wanting to be in Jerusalem, so he's traveling, and he really wanted to talk to some people from Ephesus, but he's not going to have time to make it there, and so he's going to stop at Miletus, and beginning in verse number 17, while he's at Miletus, he's going to call for and send, and these group of men are going to come and meet with him in Miletus, and who is it? It's the elders, the elders at Ephesus. So the church at Ephesus also had elders. Paul didn't call a a men's business meeting. He didn't call for all the men or all the congregation. He called for these pastors or elders. And in fact, that word or that idea of pastor is used in this particular passage, uh, not in verse 17, but as you go on through his encouragement to those men, those elders from Ephesus, he's going to talk about shepherding or the idea of being a pastor. But we see the church at Ephesus had elders. It is the pattern. We notice as well, and hopefully many of you knew where this was going because we've been talking about it on Wednesday night, but the church at Philippi had elders. Philippians chapter 1 and verse number 1, Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Jesus Christ, they're going to write this letter and send it to whom? To the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi with the bishops and the deacons, with the elders and the deacons that's who he's going to send this to to those who would be serving in a leadership role be serving as as pastors as shepherds as overseers as elders so this seems to be the pattern of what the new testament church should be not only that but if you're making notes you might add to the side titus chapter 1 in verse number 5 because not only is it the pattern we might say we might even add that it is the goal of the church. It is the desired structure of a group of people meeting, striving to serve Christ. Titus chapter 1 and verse number 5, Paul would write to Titus and say, For this reason, 
For this reason, I left you in Crete that you should set in order the things that are lacking and appoint elders in every city as I commanded you. It's the pattern. It's the goal. It's the desired structure. And again, for sake of time, we're going to have to you know, cut this sermon short to certain things. But, but it is what should be happening. Congregations can be meeting together, and maybe they don't have men who are qualified, as we say, but they should be striving to have men who are qualified. A church, a group of people who are meeting together and have men who are qualified but do not have elders also has a problem on their hands because it seems to be the pattern, doing Bible things in Bible ways, that there be men who are leading the congregation serving as elders overseers, bishops, as pastors. And so that's the goal. That is what we should be striving for. Well, that's good to know. But then let's think for just a moment about what elders do. I mean, you know, this is a question that comes up from time to time. But what is it exactly that elders do? Well, one thing they do is they give the preacher a hard time. All right? I mean, that's, I mean, and they're good at it here. I think Charles gave me an amen. But they give the preacher a hard time. Uh, Charles does that. Jerry asks lots of questions. He's rolling his eyes at me now, giving me a hard time. So, but that's one thing that they try to be good. They give the preacher a hard time. You know, sometimes we joke. People say they call the preacher and they say, "Well, what do I need to do?" And the preacher says, "We well, need to go see the elders." And they call the elders and they ask a question. They say, "Well, you need to go talk to the preacher." But the elders, very often, you know, they give the preacher a hard time. They're pretty good at that. I think they practice sometimes. Well, there's another thing that they do is they have a full understanding of the color wheel, right? Carpet paint they know exactly how to match and mix and match paint and to take care of the walls and all of these things because that's what elders do right I mean they have to make sure that we have pews that are colored and carpet and painting along the wall so um, we don't give them a quiz per se but they need to have a full understanding of the color wheel they also make sure that the ladies restroom is fully stocked with paper towels right that's one thing you don't want to go astray of the ladies you don't want to be sure that they are needing things so elders very often and yes tongue-in-cheek, but also maybe with a hint, just a hint of truth, get caught up in making sure that the ladies' restroom and the men's restroom and the kitchen or other things are stocked and fully kept up with, with all the things that are needed so that everybody else is happy. Now, yes, absolutely, I'm being a little sarcastic, but if we're all being honest, sometimes this is exactly what the elders do. I'm not calling out the elders here or any particular congregation, but almost every congregation I mean, we hop in the bus and just take a trip around the area, but almost every congregation, sometimes the elders get caught up in worrying about those things and those things only so that they can't do the other things that they are supposed to be doing, the things that the Bible says that they should be doing. Yeah, they give the preacher a hard time, and we do that all in fun and jest here, and we joke about that, but yeah, they do get caught up sometimes in worrying about the little things Instead of taking care of what we would say we see on the pages of the Bible is actually overseeing. Not overseeing the ladies' restroom or just the color samples, but making sure that they're watching out for our souls. So what is it then that actually elders are supposed to be doing? Well, number one, they are supposed to be overseeing. We've already looked at Acts chapter 20, but if you want to take time today or in the coming week, if you have Bible reading time that you go through to consider what the Bible says about elders, you need to read Acts chapter 20. As Paul is having an interaction here, not only does he give them instructions, does he give them guidance, but you would see at the end of chapter 20, in verse number 37, that when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them. That's verse 36. But verse 37, they all wept freely and fell on Paul's neck and kissed him, sorrowing most of all for the words which he spoke, that they would see his face no more, and they accompanied him to the ship as he was about to set sail. Now, that's a little different than the overseeing, but I would just encourage you to recognize here that the relationship of this man and these elders was such that they were emotional. They were upset, which means or implies that they had a relationship that they had encouraged one another from time to time, that they had worked together. We say blood, sweat, and tears. They had probably been through all of that, and they had done that. And so when they had these moments, even of sorrow, as he said, I won't see you again, and they know that, they are weeping freely and openly because they have a strong relationship. And... Because they have a strong relationship, he can give them words of encouragement. And we might even say stern words, 
just, just strong words and tell them exactly what they need to be doing, which includes in verse 28, the overseeing. Therefore, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Now, I don't know about you, but there's no between the print and my Bible. I don't see color wheel. I don't see paper towels or all these other things that we just kind of joked about a few moments ago. They're supposed to be overseen. And sometimes maybe they get caught up in doing those other things. Sometimes we drag them down and bring them to all of these other things, and they're not able to simply oversee the church. Once again, through a pandemic and just any year in general, we know that the elders have lots of things that they should be doing, are supposed to be doing, overseeing the church. Does that involve the budget? Yeah, it does. Does that involve sometimes being sure that things are stopped or taken care of? Yes, it does. Does it involve seeing that things are updated and painted from time to time or new things are put in place? Absolutely. But they are also supposed to be overseers. Secondly, they're supposed to watch out for our souls. Hebrews chapter 13 and verse number 17, the Hebrew writer would say, Obey those who rule over you and be submissive, for they watch out for your souls. As those who must give account, let them do so with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. There's another word. Sometimes the relationship, not only between maybe the minister or the preacher and the elders, but the congregation and the elders is one of grief. It's one of trouble. It's one of sorrow because so many things are going on. And yes, some things happen from time to time, but they're to watch out for our souls. And watch over our, our bank account. Even in the last year, they have watched out for our health some, but they're not in charge of my blood pressure. They're not in charge of the things that I need to take care of as far as my health. They are in charge of my soul. That's a fine balance to strike. We have canceled services because of ice or snow, and they've kind of watched out for our health, want to make sure there wasn't a danger to us. Last year, we did cancel for a time. But we also knew that if they're watching out for our souls, we need to be back together at some point. We need to be assembling. Because, by the way, side note real quick, but, but that's one way that they do that. I think we've talked about this in a sermon in previous years. But the elders, one way they watch out for our souls is they open those doors. And they hire a minister. And they make sure they're Bible class teachers. And they say, we're going to meet at 9.30, 10.30, at 6 o'clock, at 7 o'clock, and we're going to have class. And we're going to have teaching. And in doing so, we're watching out for your soul. Now, that's not the only way or the only times, but that is certainly one way in which they watch out for our souls. So, yes, we're supposed to assemble together. Yes, we're supposed to encourage one another. But Hebrews 13, 17, we're also supposed to obey. And when our elders say, I'm watching out for your soul by opening the doors and having teaching, then we should be here as often as we can to ensure that we are accepting that teaching and we are encouraging one another. Yes, they are to do many things, but they are also to oversee and to watch out for our souls. And then one interesting one that we don't often mention is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse number 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse number 10. The whole chapter, Paul is speaking about unity. You see that on the screen already as you're filling out your outline. But he's talking about unity. Now I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same Thing, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. Question, how do we do that? Well, some of you have been a part of men's business meetings before. Men's business meetings sometimes get a bad name, you know, and sometimes they also do go sideways. And you find men on this side and men on this side and men in that section who all argue and disagree and there's nobody to help lead and make decisions. And I think that one way in which God has said we can have unity and speak the same thing and there be no divisions is to have elders that help us fulfill that unity by making the decisions. By sharing with us, by interacting and talking. They are not a board of directors that sit in New York City or somewhere far off and simply make decisions. Yes, they do sometimes have private meetings, closed-door meetings where they need to discuss serious things. But quite often, if not almost always as they can, they will come forth from those meetings and then share the decisions that they have made as much as they can. 
Some things might need to remain private, but they will also share the budget. They'll also share the choices that they've made, the decisions that they've made, and they're, they're hard. They're very, very hard very often to go through those things and to consider all of these things, uh, especially even when you get men together, multiple men, more than one, two, three, four, five, to, to try to decide things. It's tough. But they come forth, not only do they come forth in unity, but they strive to help us with unity. You know, very often we have, you know, 75 to 100 people here. We might just get 75 to 100 different opinions on many different things. But the elders help us with our unity. Maybe in the things that are a little trivial, maybe. Maybe we'll, the color of certain things or how we're going to handle something. But absolutely as well in unity of the spirit, in unity of our teaching and our preaching. They help us fulfill that, and that is so encouraging for us to consider. Well, what else? What can we do? All right, we're talking about this morning, I wanted to talk about elders or pastors in general, and, and I thought, well, let's talk about what they're supposed to be doing. We can't leave it there. It's not all on them. What can we be doing? Well, number one, we can use them. We can use them. Now, that's not in the uh, negative sense. That's not abuse them, by the way. Let me make sure I, I speak clearly here. Don't abuse them or use them in that way, but use them. You know, they, they've said to me from time to time, I want people to come to me. You know, sometimes people do call me with a question or, or something. I say, the first thing I'll say is, you need to go talk to the elders. I, I appreciate you coming to me, and I, I'm always willing to listen, but I'm not the decision maker I'm not the one who's going to decide, but you need to go to them. They do desire that. They desire to be used. And let me say it again to make sure you are clear, I am clear. Go to them with your spiritual matters as well. I mean, they might need to know if the paper towels are out in the bathroom, but they really want to know if you are struggling spiritually. If there's something wrong in your family or your marriage or with your children and they can pray for you or help you, they want to know that and we need to use them, not abuse them, but use them in the positive ways in which God has set forth and go to them and share things with them. That's one thing that we can do because then they know that they are overseen. I mean, sometimes they hear Maybe through the, the gossip or the grapevine, the, the speaking around, they might know you're going through something, but they're saddened then to know that you don't trust them enough or, or feel confident enough to come to them with those things. They want to be used in those ways, and they certainly want to be used in the spiritual ways and not just the, the trivial physical ways as well. Instead of just fussing about them, instead of just talking about them on the way home or over lunch or things like that, maybe instead of going to the preacher... With all the problems or issues, go to them because they are overseeing, even in the physical things, and they are watching out for our souls. Number two, encourage them. We need to be encouraging them. Yes, we have tried to take this month, and we have asked some of you specifically to do certain things over the last few weeks. I have not, or anybody's not been intentionally left out, um, because you can always send a card to them. By all means, it doesn't just have to be the month of October, but you can encourage them. I might add and, and break that down into two ways. Number one, spiritually, or even silently, spiritually or silently, you can pray for them. I mean, our men do. Our men do here from the pulpit and, and in public from, from time to time in our prayers. But you, pray for them specifically. Pray for them in your private prayers. I don't know how many of you keep like a prayer journal or a prayer list. We've talked about that in previous sermons to help us with our prayers. But if you do, how often if we were to go back through, or even just mentally, go back through our prayers over the last week or month, have the elders been on that list? I mean, we kind of give a positive attitude of, hey, we, we appreciate you and, and, you know, that kind of thing. We think, oh, man, I appreciate them. But how often do we spiritually or silently uh, encourage them, uh, maybe share things with them, uh, you know, maybe buy them a book or two. Or if you find something on elders, an article or two that's encouraging about elders and the work of elders, you can just kind of, you know, things that nobody knows about. Slip them some of those things to, to encourage them in their work. Uh, maybe if you hear about something or, or even something that they could be doing or thinking about, encourage them spiritually. But number two, we might say physically or even publicly. Physically and, and publicly do that. We have tried to do that this month, but let me encourage you. I, I'm, I hope you pray privately for them, but say it to them. I, I mean, say it to them face-to-face. -face. I appreciate you. I'm thankful for you. 
and, and send the cards and take time to do the things, not just in one particular month, but uh, the, you know, from time to time that you think about it. Thanking them for the work that they do physically or just in a physical sense, thank them publicly. It doesn't have to be in front of the group, but just in a way that they know that you are considering them and you are trying to encourage them. And number three, train them. Train them. Well, now, this is not the bad way as well. This is not like our kids. Well, I'm going to train them to do what I tell them to do. Not like that. Not like a dog or anything. But train them. Well, what do we mean? Well, the qualifications that we usually talk about when we talk about elders is found in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and Titus chapter 1. And guess what? Those things don't just happen by accident. I mean, young men, young men who are teenagers, young men who are in their 20s, 30s, 40s, they don't just pop up out of the ground ready to serve as elders. If they want to meet those qualifications, we need to help train them. And by the way, that is training teenagers, 20-year-olds, 30-year-olds, 40-year-olds, because we all need training in doing what is right. We don't train them to be conditioned to do what we want them to do. We should be training future elders. We all know, and we've talked about it in the three years or so that we've been here with you, about the age of the eldership, especially here at Saudi. And as we've had a little bit of turnover in the last year or two, that, that age, guess what, just keeps going up, right? We just keep getting older unless, unfortunately, someone passes away. So what are we doing as a congregation to help train them, not the current pastors or elders but future men who would serve in that capacity what can we do we can train them that falls on the preacher preacher can preach about it we can discuss it and talk about it but what are you doing when I say encourage them you need to encourage our elders now but is there someone younger that you could encourage right now to read over those qualifications to study them to think about it because you know what the problem typically is the problem is not sometimes that men aren't qualified. The problem sometimes is that nobody wants to do it because of the way that we talk about the elders, because of the way that we run them down and give them grief over the things that they do or the things that we don't like. And so there are sometimes plenty of qualified young, younger men who say, there's not a chance I'm ever going to be an elder. I'll stay as far away from that as I can. And that is a lot of words, just very sad just very awful to think that all of us, myself included, or anyone who serves as a member of a congregation would treat the eldership in such a fashion that nobody wants to do it, even when they meet the qualifications that are listed forth in the Word of God. This has been a month in which we have tried to honor our elders, and we have tried to appreciate them throughout the month in a physical sense. Don't just take the time this month but take the time every day to pray for them, to think about them. Yes, to do it publicly or physically in a sense. And let's continue to look forward to think about men who can serve as elders, overseers, bishops, and pastors and help this congregation. You know, within the first few weeks that I was here, a part of the congregation, the first month, I got one of the uh, packets, one of the things, the information that was put together a few years ago around the 100-year anniversary. Do you want to see 150? Do you want to see 200? Do you want your children and grandchildren and others to find a place that is meeting faithfully here, serving the Lord? Then we need to make sure that we appreciate our elders, that we use them, encourage them, and train them. As we conclude our lesson this morning, we encourage you to think about your life with God, whether you have a right relationship with God. We joke sometimes that you know that the, the sermon doesn't always lend itself perfectly as a, a segue into the invitation. But we take time as a means here. One of the things that the elders encourage us to do is to take time at the end of our lesson to extend heaven's invitation that if you are here this morning and you are not a child of God, then you would consider being baptized for the remission of your sins, coming in contact with the blood of Christ so that he can add you to his church and you can begin to serve faithfully. If you've not done that this morning, why not? And how can we encourage you to make that great commitment? Maybe you're here but you have, as a Christian, but you've wandered away. There's sin in your life that you need help with. One of the ways that our elders watch out for our souls is not too long ago, they decided that one would come to the front here. One would come forward. 
Because sometimes the preacher standing down here lends itself to that misconception that many people have that the preacher is the pastor and he's the one that has to hear the confession or do something in some form or fashion. But no, we're thankful that our elders have committed at least one each time to come down here. If you need to repent of sin in a public fashion, want to make that known so that we can pray with you or for you, we'd be glad to do that because no one has to leave with these questions in their mind about your relationship with God. You can become a Christian or come back to him, even now as we stand together and as we sing. Well, that you're here, an opportunity to encourage ourselves with a, another evening of Bible study, thinking about God's word. Hope that it is encouraging for you. Uh, you know, we've talked about our, our Sunday night services a good bit, especially over the last year or so, or part of last year as we missed those and had a time where we weren't able to meet. Uh, and so we missed that. And I think many of us recognized how encouraging Sunday night can be. It's sometimes tougher, uh, maybe harder to get back out. A lot of us uh, joke about our uh, precious Sunday afternoon naps and how much we love those and that kind of thing. And yeah, sometimes it's hard to want to, to get back out again or maybe to, uh, to dress up again a little bit. Maybe if you put on what you had on on Sunday morning or to be here, but it, it's very encouraging. And a lot of times as we try to say and remind ourselves, uh, it's just encouraging, encouraging to be together. Hopefully we gain something from the lesson and the time of study. But simply the time of song and the time of encouragement that we spend just in fellowship is a great way to start our week uh, as the first day of the week or in this first day of the week and think about, for many of you, going out into the workforce or going to school and, and thinking about the, the week that lies ahead. We have emphasized on our Sunday night services, uh, especially here lately, the idea of being able to look at some different subjects, talk about some different things. And even a few weeks ago, as we sort of had a lesson on the idea of biblical literacy and also biblical illiteracy that it's very easy sometimes to uh, see phrases and even even since I've preached that lesson uh, you know almost every time it seems that maybe I get on Facebook for a few moments and I start scrolling through I see different quotes and things that uh, are, are meant to be encouraging and some of them are but some of them also have absolutely nothing to do with the Word of God, and some of them don't promote that at all. Maybe they're just things to make us happy or encourage us to be better people in a general sense. But sometimes they do tend to have a bit of a religious twist on them, and so then we're faced with a decision. And for many of us who spend time on Facebook, it's do we share it? Do we go and like that or share that? Do we share it with others? And sometimes maybe we're not meaning to, but we will even inadvertently sometimes share things uh, that we that aren't true, maybe, that aren't biblical. And, and sometimes it's a matter of moments. I mean, many of you know, especially on our phone, maybe we're scrolling with our thumbs or, or whatever on our um, tablet, and we're just kind of going through, and very quickly we make decisions. And part of the challenge that I would like to, to challenge you with and challenge even myself with is as we are doing that, that we try to be very careful in the things that we share. The question that's before us tonight that's in your bulletin, I, I phrase it as a question for the bulletin, but it deals with maybe one way that we can define the church. And by church, of course, we don't mean the building, even though we're going to talk about a physical building tonight. There's a picture of a building here on the screen, and we're going to talk about another building in the form of a hospital. But it's not the building, but we're talking about the people that are involved with the church. You see, some people would say that the church is a museum, a museum for saints. Actually, it was very hard to sort of nail down a, a actual uh, you know, source for this quote. I thought I had found one earlier in the week, and then even this afternoon as I was studying just a little bit more, I went to find the name, and when I type it into Google and search for it, I find about four different people that are cited as the origins of this quote, but lots of people have used it over the years. The idea that the, the church is a museum. I saw someone say the church is a hotel, uh, and there were some other things that were used, some variations of this particular quote, but it's a museum for saints. Now, some people would say, well, that's an idea where this is a, a place of maybe perfection. I mean, you can kind of even tell a little bit on the, the picture here. It's a little bit blurry, but, but it's this place maybe where, where it's always clean. You know, everything seems to be perfect. And not only that, but we tend to put up on the walls maybe pictures of perfect people. Uh, right? I mean, these are, are, are places where we hold these people up and they seem to be perfect. They didn't do anything wrong. We all love them and remember them and the things that they did. And that is something that is sometimes done uh, just in, in good 
nature, you know, I mean, just as something that can be encouraging. I think about the building here. We even have some, some plaques or some things on, on certain things of where people donated something or maybe gave them money for something to be purchased. Well, some people will look at that and say, well, you're just holding up these people as being, you know, perfection. And it's this museum where you go and only the best can get in. Uh, sometimes some people would, would associate with museums, these, these quiet places where it's all perfect and clean. Only the, maybe the rich can afford to go there or the, only the rich can afford these statues or these uh, pictures or these kinds of things. And so they would say that the church is a museum for saints. How many people say that, I don't think? Not too many because it's really that it's said in connection with the other part of this quote. And that is the idea that the church is not a museum for saints but that is that it should actually be a hospital for sinners. Now, connected together, this is our phrase, and I'll go ahead, and I think it's on the next slide, but, but put it up there. But this is the thing that's shared, all right? A meme or whatever you want to call it that's sometimes shared on Facebook pages and on social media. And it's the idea that the church is a hospital for sinners and not a museum for saints. Now, we live in a world that is full of sin. I, I try to be careful about that. I share that with you sometimes, that, that we, we get caught up and we say that it's increasingly full of sin. Kind of. I mean, there's a lot of sin, but there's a lot of other types of sin as well that have been around for a long time. The one that we sometimes harp on in our particular country is the idea of homosexuality. And we say, well, you know, this seems to be something new. And it, it's a little bit newer in our country, maybe that it's more accepted and it wants to be accepted in certain ways, especially with our government and things. Uh, but we all know that we go backwards in our Bible to the very beginning, and their homosexuality, the sin of homosexuality, is present. And so it's not necessarily increasingly full of sin or sinners, uh, but there are still, still many people who choose to live their lives not according to the Word of God. And so one thing that we do, and where this comes from sometimes, is the idea of evangelism, maybe, or, or reaching out outreach right and and we use social media as a form of outreach in fact just a few moments ago we sat here in this room and the elders and deacons and, and I sat there and we talked about different things and Brian went over with us some of our social media numbers if you will just how many people are viewing our sermons and our services online on YouTube and Facebook how many people are visiting our website and seeking out maybe some information so we know that those avenues can be used to reach people and in the idea of reaching people, a lot of people use this kind of quote to try to remind the world that this is a place for people to come when they are hurt or when they have sin in their lives. And that is absolutely true. You see, this phrase, or this, I formed it as a question, but this often repeated phrase certainly contains at least part of it an important truth. And I'll tell you, as I challenge you to, to be careful what you share and what you, you look at on social media, one of the challenges is not so much that there is right and wrong, but there are things that kind of fiddle the gray area. Maybe there's a shred of truth to a quote. This quote is often repeated because it can serve as a much-needed corrective or correction against what can be the superficial vision version of the church. The superficial version of the church is the one where all of us, puts on, we all put on a perfect face. When we're around each other, we all put on a perfect face. And regardless of what we're dealing with in our personal lives, we come here and we kind of act like nothing's wrong. Uh, just very surface, very superficial version of the church. And this quote or this phrase, it points out the problem with, that some churches have of gatekeeping if you will, gatekeeping against those whose lives sometimes aren't as clean as others. I mean, you know, the Bible talks about it, right? We're not going to necessarily go into detail in the passages that talk about bringing in the person who's not dressed the best, doesn't have the rings on their fingers, or maybe looks the nicest, and reaching out to those who don't fit in that category. What happens is we see someone come in who's dressed super nice and seems to be very clean and put together, and we welcome them to the front, and the person comes in who's maybe a little lesser, a little dirtier, uh, looks a little different than most people, and we kind of hide them in the back or tell them they can, they can sit in a particular section. And we know that should not be the case. And so I think this quote, which contains a shred of truth to it, is the idea that, yes, we shouldn't do that. 
We shouldn't bring the best to the front and keep everyone else away and sort of be gatekeepers who say at the door, well, you know what? You're allowed in, but no, I'm sorry, you can't come in. You don't fit the measurement or the standard that we tend to have. And so this can be a correction for this superficial version of the church. But, but as is often the case, we are sometimes prone to overreact to one bad idea by embracing the equal and opposite extreme rather than finding the solid ground of truth. And so part of the overreaction in this case has brought about a rethinking of the church as a permanent hospital. Now, you're going to have to listen carefully. I mean, you're going to have to pay attention to kind of what we're saying here because there is some shred of truth among this, but part of the overreaction has said and brought about the, the rethinking of the church as a permanent hospital. And so this particular thought and, and some of this idea comes from an, an article that I saw online, the Focus Press website by our brother Jack Wilkie, who, who talked about whether or not this is true and whether or not so often we go to extremes and we kind of get on one side or the other and we don't find the common solid ground of truth looking at God's word. A couple of things to begin as we think about this. Yes, there I went through all of it again. Yes, all right, Tra or no, Chase is back there, not Travis tonight. Chase, you may have to get me back on track. Yes, one more time. We should not hide our weaknesses. That is absolutely true. And I firmly believe, because I think I've said this a whole lot over the last few months, or at least I feel like I have, but we absolutely need to lean upon one another. And there are so many people who struggle with certain things here in our congregation. There are so many people who struggle with one thing and so many people hide out over here on the other side and they think, well, nobody knows what I'm going through. And so what we don't do is go around the room and say, okay, raise your hand if you've dealt with this. Raise your hand if you've dealt with that. And let's identify everybody who's ever had sin in their life so that then we can then you know, talk to each other. I'm not sure always how to find that perfect balance, that exact balance of how we do that without just calling everybody out and asking you to raise your hand or asking who's struggling with this now and struggling with that now. But I do think that we struggle sometimes with hiding our weaknesses because we're, we're afraid to admit, admit that we have trouble. A couple of passages for us to consider. Uh, we should confess our sins. If you're jotting down notes, James chapter 5 and verse 16. James 5 and verse 16. James says confess your trespasses confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed the effective fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much yes we should not hide our sins yes we should confess our sins it's one reason that we extend heaven's invitation and we ask for you if you're having trouble to come to the front so that we can confess our sins sometimes to one another. Now, that's not always necessary. We usually point out that very often it helps to have the sin confessed in a public manner as widely as it is known. In order that our brothers and sisters can help answer for us and, and say that we have repented if we've done something wrong in a public nature. If you're struggling, struggling with something privately, then by all means, you can take it to God and repent of that in that kind of fashion. And that be okay. And you receive forgiveness. But we should confess our sins to one another. Another passage, Galatians chapter 6 and verse 2. We should bear one another's burdens. Galatians 6 and verse number 2. Bear one another's burdens, and Paul goes further, and so fulfill the law of Christ. This is what we should be doing. Once again, we had a discussion not 30 minutes ago, here in the elders and deacons and preacher meeting, about helping one another and how often we don't share that with one another. Now, the idea there was more, in our meeting was about the physical needs, helping out our widows and widowers and, and things that can be done when we need help around the house. That was sort of the context of that discussion. But it's also sometimes really easy to focus on that and ignore the spiritual aspect of this. You see, we should bear one another's burdens. I hope that you would ask help from the congregation or for someone if you need some errands done around the house or about town or something that you can do. But I absolutely also hope as well that you would not sit and hide with weaknesses, with sin, with burdens, and not share them with anyone. 
I admit that it is difficult. I, above anyone, maybe myself, stand here and say that I'm probably the most private of just about anybody sometimes, of a private person who, who don't li- doesn't always like to share good things and bad things or just a lot of things sometimes because I struggle with that. I can keep it all in. That's not what the Bible says. We must not hide our weaknesses. We should confess our sins to one another and bear one another's burdens. No, we should not remain separated from the lost, making them feel we have reached some standard that is unattainable to them. That's the museum idea of this. That sometimes people look at the church and they say, well, I'm not going in there because I don't look like them, I don't talk like them, and they tend to act like they're better than me. So no, absolutely not. We should, we should not avoid the lost or act like we've reached some standard and you've got to meet that standard in order to set foot in this building or to participate with what we're doing here. However, serving as such a hospital, if we're taking the other side of this, serving as such a hospital for sinners is merely one part of the church's function. You see, here's the problem with this quote, if we could kind of sum it up. And the problem with this quote is, no one is meant to live in a hospital. I probably thought I'd get a lot of amens from there. Any of you that have been in the hospital, nobody wants to live in the hospital, right? That's no fun. To take it even to the physical sense. If you were in the hospital, most of us want to get out of there as fast as we can for lots of reasons. And most of it being the uncomfortableness of being there and folks attending to you and all those kinds of things. But no one is meant to live in a hospital. You go there and you receive treatment and healing and then you hope to go on your way better than before. That's the purpose of a hospital. If we aren't careful, we can give, we can kind of institutionalize this idea of the church as a permanent hospital. But a gospel that can only offer pain management without ever healing, a gospel that can only offer pain management without ever offering healing is not much of a gospel at all. When we think about God's word and what it tells us to do, it's not just about pain management and kind of going through these things and constantly living in this cycle of sin, but it's about healing, getting better and moving on going to something better, a life that is better. You know, in our world today, and part of the reason that this quote is used a lot, is much is made or said about our so-called messy lives or how we deal with our brokenness. And that's true. I mean, a lot of us have been broken in some ways. Maybe it's when we were younger or something we've come through. And yes, in a sense, we are all sinners. But some seem to think the lost will be more open to the church if we just emphasize how broken we all are. And if you think about that, that does sound a little backwards. That doesn't exactly sound like something that we should welcome people into. Hey, this is the mud pit. Just come join us in the mud pit, right? In the mire, in all of our troubles. And if it's true that we all have our trials and we all stumble and fall, in, it is true that we all have our troubles and our trials, that we all stumble, we all fall into sin. We know Romans 3 In verse 23, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We think about James chapter 3 and verse number 2 though. James chapter 3 and verse number 2 kind of in connection with that from Romans chapter 3. But James would say there, for we all stumble in many things. If anyone does not stumble in word, he is a perfect man able also to bridle the whole body. Now, I preach about context, so let's talk about context for a minute. The context here, of course, in James 3 is about the tongue, right? It's about our words. But we also gather the idea that we are wrong if we claim to be perfect. We all stumble in many things. It's true we all have our trials, that we all have times that we stumble and fall into sin, but we cannot stay there. We cannot wallow in the mire. We can't just keep living in our brokenness. Yes, we want to do our best to bring people in to a a relationship with Jesus, to be baptized for the remission of their sins, to serve him. We want to encourage people to see that this is a good thing that they should be a part of, the church. And we're always striving to find that balance of a hospital for sinners, of people who are broken, 
and, and a museum for saints where we're all perfect. And then people say, well, I can never reach that. We cannot stay in our sin even though we do sin. We must not, and I think this is key, but we must not repeat the line constantly that we are all broken. We were all broken. We were all broken at one point, and some of us still are in a sense. I mean, kind of in one way. But the cross of Jesus Christ, the sacrifice of Jesus giving his life, heals our brokenness. It makes us whole, even in our continued struggles and trials. You see, this is another lesson that I think we've talked about once here before, although it's been a while, I'm pretty sure. But the idea of walking in the light, the idea that we sing a blessed assurance, that's kind of this concept as well. No one is suggesting that we walk with our head down all the time, worried every morning that we pray in the morning and we pray at night and any time that we don't pray, we're in danger because we might do something. That's not blessed assurance. That's not walking in the light. And so it's kind of the concept here along with this that we are going to have struggles and trials, but we just can't continue to stay in sin and in the mud. Christ makes us whole and to deny or insist, excuse me, to insist that we are broken sinners is to deny the work of Christ. It's to deny what he did. In him, we are more than conquerors. We think about Romans chapter 8, verses 37 through 39. In Christ, we are more than conquerors, and we are more than conquerors over anything that life throws at us. Not only that, but we know Hebrews chapter 12 and verse number 1 reminds us that we are called to lay aside the sin that so easily ensnares us or besets us. So we have to be careful that we don't continue to repeat this line that we are all broken sinners because when we become a Christian, the blood of Christ washes our sins away. We were broken, but we've been made new. We raise out of the waters of baptism to walk in newness of life. And absolutely, without a doubt, yes, none of us are then going to be perfect. We're still going to have struggles. But it's sort of a false idea if we just promote. We'll come in because we're all broken and we're all sort of living there because no one is meant to live in a hospital. Let's consider for just a moment, if you will, Jesus and the portrait of Jesus that we find in Luke's gospel, or Luke's account of the gospel. If you want to be turning to Luke, we're going to talk about a few passages. But you know, one of Luke's greatest ideas or themes, if you look at the book of Luke, is that everybody is invited to Jesus' table. That's true. That's part of Luke's encouragement. That's something that someone can open to Luke's account of the gospel and say, I appreciate that fact. We see Jesus, in Luke's account, associating with the Gentiles, with the lowly so-called sinners, if you will. In fact, in Luke chapter 10, he gives parables uplifting a Samaritan, of all things. And we know that the Jews look down upon the Samaritans. He gives us parables and stories of tax collectors. And not only that, but in Luke chapter 15, if you recall... One of the great chapters of the Bible, the parable of the lost things, if you will. We talked about it in our vacation Bible school. The lost sheep, the lost coin, the lost son. How does that begin? It begins with the Pharisees and the scribes complaining, Luke 15 and verse number 2, saying that Jesus is spending time with sinners. The whole setting for the prodigal son that everybody appreciates and loves is that Jesus is spending time with lost people, with the Pharisees and the scribes, with sinners. Much has been said of this thought that Jesus accepts anybody, and in a sense, that's true. God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. However, that doesn't mean that he accepts everybody, that he accepts everybody. In this same gospel, we, look, we talked about Luke 10, we talked about Luke 15, but look at Luke chapter 9 and verse number 23. In this same gospel, Jesus places very strict, rigorous expectations on anybody who wants to follow after him. Luke 9 and verse 23 
that a disciple of Christ must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me, Jesus says. Luke 9 and verse number 62, Jesus says, anyone who looks back, who thinks about the things of this earth and, and thinks about those things is not fit for the kingdom of God. We might say any person who is kind of riding the fence, who is lukewarm, who's in the middle and says, well, you know, I want to follow Christ, but I've kind of got all these other things that I'm thinking about that I'm busy with, is not fit for the kingdom of God. And even Luke chapter 14 in verse number 26, Jesus says, whoever does not hate, back up into verse 26, hate all of these things and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. So once again, we're trying to strike a balance. And the balance is, is that yes, Jesus accepts anybody who's willing to come to him. But not just everybody. Because not everybody is willing to follow these strict expectations that he lays out for those who will follow after him. So where does that leave us when we think about this? Well, yes, we come broken. There's a popular psalm that's kind of gained traction over the last few years for, for our young people. The idea that I come broken. Yes, I come broken to him. I come with my issues, with my problems, with my past, with the things that I've done. And yes, even the things that I sometimes continue to do when I mess up. I come broken. And he accepts us. He accepts us as such when we think about that. But he leaves no room for us to wallow in our brokenness and never expect to grow or change from, ourse from ourselves who we were to who we need to be. He leaves no room for us to just stay in that sinful state and to never change, to never grow. He wants us to get better, to be healed from our sinful state, but to continue to grow and get better. You know, when you leave the hospital, they, uh, they send you home with that list of things that you're supposed to do. If you're like us, sometimes they get lost in the seat in the van on the way home, right? You don't follow those instructions. Yes, there are things we need to do to keep growing, to keep getting better. He loves us enough to take us as we are, and he loves us to, enough to make us into something new. We come broken, he accepts us, and we are made new. If we never feel like conquerors, but instead we always emphasize our brokenness, then we downplay Christ's ability to save and to give us new life. See, I, I, I get it. And hopefully you get it now too. We want to be welcoming. We want people who have done awful, terrible things. People who say there is no way that Christ can forgive me. That his blood can, there's no way it could heal me from my sin. We want those people to come. To hear the saving power of the gospel message and to be baptized, to be added to the church, to be made new. And we want to put forth this idea that we are welcoming, that Christ is welcoming, and he is. But we cannot de-emphasize or put down the idea that we need to be better and that once we are healed by Christ, that we keep improving. To kind of sum it up to say, if in an effort to comfort the struggling or welcome the sinners if we don't give assurance of victory, but rather instead we affirm their spot in the mud, then we aren't loving them. We're not helping them. And we have to find a balance of that. The hospital phase of coming to Christ or coming to be a part of the church, it simply has to be only a, a phase, only a stop along the way towards being made new and being made whole. Praise God that we aren't what we once were. But we can't stay that way. And we should not allow anybody to think that that's what's expected. Is the hospital a, or is the church a hospital for sinners or is it a museum for saints? Probably another one of those things where the answer is yes, in a sense. We want to be saints in the body. Saints in the church that belongs to Christ. We also want to welcome in sinners. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 7, in him we have redemption through his blood. We have the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. You see, is that statement or that question true or false? Well, unfortunately, it just doesn't kind of paint the whole picture. 
And I think as we have kind of emphasized some of these statements or questions even here recently, and I hope to maybe uh, point out some others as they come up, and if you have anything you have questions about, let me know. We have to understand that while it sounds good and it can be welcoming, we also want to stand upon the solid ground of truth, as we said towards the beginning of the lesson. With that in mind tonight, we extend heaven's invitation. If you are here and you are not a child of God, we would be singing to encourage you that you would become a child of God tonight, be made whole, which can only come about by the blood of Christ, coming in contact with that and having your sins washed away. Maybe you are here and you feel broken. You feel like a sinner because we're not going to be 100% without a doubt perfect once we become a Christian. That's okay because we have an opportunity now to make a change. Maybe you need to make a public response and let it be known before this congregation, your brothers and sisters, as we're striving to be a bit of a hospital but also a place that we can come together, we want to pray with you and for you. And if you're here tonight and you need to make a change, we would love to encourage you even now as we stand together and as we sing.